Thank you for tuning in to The Rundown here on WNYU 89.1 FM New York and online everywhere at WNYU.org. I'm your host, Grace Wanabo. Tonight we will be covering legalizing sex work, the Omicron variant, NYU's new tuition policy, the return of holiday markets, and redistricting in New York City. But first, here is your Daily Rundown. For the Daily Rundown, this is Grace Wanabo. Michael Steinhardt is being forced to hand over $70 million worth of stolen antiquities. This comes after a four-year-long investigation into his criminal conduct. Steinhardt is a billionaire hedge fund manager after whom NYU's Steinhardt School of Culture, Education, and Human Development is named. Although he has been permanently banned on collecting artifacts, he will not face any criminal charges. President Biden and President Putin of Russia had a virtual meeting yesterday morning, where Biden warned him of the economic consequences of escalating Russia's military presence of tens of thousands of troops around Ukraine, according to a White House statement. Biden said that if he continues to further invade Ukraine, that the U.S. and European allies would respond with strong economic measures. People incarcerated in New York City jails will now be given better access to medical care following a court decision made on Monday. Judge Elizabeth Taylor ordered the New York City Department of Correction to ensure detainees can visit on-site clinics at least five days a week and within 24 hours after a visit request. Corrections authorities must also guarantee enough security staff to guide them to and from visits. While Mark Meadows has stopped cooperating with the January 6th committee, Mark Short has now agreed to come forth and testify. Short, who is the former vice president's chief of staff, was a witness to many critical events surrounding the investigation. This includes what happened to Pence during the Capitol riot. The Biden administration has brought back a Trump-era border policy called Remain in Mexico. It will allow officials to send non-Mexican migrants back to Mexico while they wait for their U.S. immigration court hearings. Although the Biden administration has sought to end it, a federal judge in Texas ordered them to bring the policy back. This is WNYU. Since the pandemic, the gemstone market has been booming. More and more these days, people are turning to crystals as healing devices. Vaishnavi Nadu has the story. Spiritual healer Laurel Rethke sits cross-legged on the bed of her Manhattan apartment. Behind her is a floor-to-ceiling wall of her crystal collection. Laurel is the owner of the Fairy Den, a crystal shop in Midtown that offers personalized workshops for healing, and business is booming. She first got into crystals more than 20 years ago as a means of healing herself. I have a lot of new people coming into me. Anytime there was sort of an energetic upgrade that happened, like we would have some sort of astrological event, that I would often get calls like three or four people saying, hey, um, I don't know why I wasn't into crystals last week, but now I really want some. The Guardian reports that Americans account for 35 percent of the growing global market for gemstones, with increased anxiety during the pandemic being cited as the reason why. What's interesting is during the pandemic, interest in crystals and crystal healing surpassed interest in diamonds. This increased interest, to an extent, can be explained by the popular social media platform TikTok, which blew up during the pandemic. 
19-year-old Sonika Nandi considers herself to be a crystal newbie. I think the way that I got into it was a lot by TikTok, which is, like, for better or worse. Also, like, try to, like, stay hydrated and, like, eat well and, like, hang out with my friends and I'm feeling bad as well. So it's, like, a mixture of a lot of things in your life. I think just don't put a lot of, like, if you're in a truly terrible position in your life, like, don't go out buying crystals thinking you'll solve all your issues. You know what I mean? I think it's a dangerous mentality to have with anything. Like Sonica, 21-year-old spiritual guide and horoscope reader Jen Curran is wary of the information being put out on the platform. <laughs> so I am not a TikTok fan at all, like just in general. Like I know that our generation, especially during like the pandemic, kind of were restless and trying to think of something to do. So I would imagine that TikTok's responsible for a lot of the uh, rise in popularity. I imagine there's some really great stuff, and then I imagine that there's, you know, some questionable stuff some of this questionable stuff has to do with the hashtag moldavite craze which is said to have racked up 280 million views on tiktok moldavite is a rare tektite formed by meteor impact it's known for an immense vibrational energy and is said to be capable of causing upheavals in one's life and so there's some some trends that have gone out on tiktok that um I wouldn't advise, like, for instance, the whole Moldavite craze. I'm like, oh, this is not responsible the way it's going out there. So I had one woman who was like, but I want it anyway. I want it anyway. Even though she didn't think it was that pretty, she was like, I want it. And she got a bunch of it. And then she almost had a car accident. Whether Moldavite or crystals in general can cause car accidents remains to be seen. They're definitely having their moment and they're here to stay. For NYU Journalism, I'm Vaishnavi Naidu. The state of Oregon is setting out to decriminalize sex work. Elizabeth Carlyle talks to Anna Wilkings, an NYU professor and licensed sex therapist and social worker, about the realities of sex work and what decriminalizing it would entail. Here's the story. On November 16th, advocates filed paperwork with the Oregon Secretary of State to decriminalize sex work in that state. Aaron Budenchoft, speaker with the Sex Work Advocate Group and chief petitioner of the Oregon Sex Worker Rights Act, told media sex worker rights are human rights. And was joined by his political director of the Sex Worker Rights Act campaign, Anne-Marie Backstrom, who said sex workers deserve to do their job without fear of arrest, of violence, and like all workers, they deserve to have access to health care, labor protections, and public service. When thinking of sex work, many listeners and friends may have thoughts of red light districts and hypersexualized women with drug habits and a pimp behind them. However, Anna Wilking, a professor at NYU in Brooklyn College, as well as a licensed sex therapist and social worker, notes the reality is much different. A lot of people are misinformed about what constitutes sex work, you know. In this country, unfortunately, we have Hollywood narratives that that feed us these images of sex work of of mostly women who are who have pimps and who are supporting drug habits. And that's just not the case for most sex workers. That's that's a myth. And we 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 have very little education about who could be working in the field. It's much more diverse 
than than that. Certainly, all sorts of individuals work within the industry. People of all genders, of all sexual orientation. It's sex work is an umbrella term that includes just street prostitution, but more and more, it's it's online. In my research, I was actually working with cis and trans females who who had gone into sex work through peers or through family members. Professor Wilking distinguishes that sex work is an umbrella term. Not only do sex workers have a diverse identity regarding race, gender, religion, sexuality, but also their performance of sex work can include, but not limited to, things like street work, brothel work, pornography, cam modeling, and other such sex-based activities. This work, because it's, it's just not simply seen as work. It's not seen as a profession. Because of the field and people are so diverse, Professor Wilking emphasizes the need for the regular citizen to learn. They need to have conversations, look at research, and begin to look online for more information about sex work. However, she also notes that sex work, due to the current legal statutes of criminalized sex work, that such information is largely hidden. Decriminalization will help pave the way for new information of this hidden industry. And as more states in the United States begin to decriminalize sex work, some resistance to decriminalization acts have been pushed back due to fear of increased human trafficking. Human trafficking is is really, that's another myth that human trafficking and prostitution go hand in hand. That again is sort of what we have been taught through these really dangerous like Hollywood narratives about sex work, that sex work and human trafficking are are one and the same. People who are trafficked, the vulnerable, the most vulnerable people to be trafficked are often agricultural workers. They're not working in the sex trade. People get trafficked to to work in agriculture more than they get trafficked to work in um, sex. So I remember first learning that and I was like, oh, wow, that is not talked about. That is this idea of equating human trafficking with prostitution is incredibly problematic. For countries where sex work is legal, we find that government regulations have allowed for greater safety, health care, and benefits for sex workers. With sex work in this country is so many sex workers are from marginalized communities. There's a lot of trans folks, folks of color, people who already exist very much on the margins. And doing this work is is incredibly dangerous. These folks are already vulnerable and decriminalization would at least allow these folks to to work in a manner that could actually provide them some sort of safety, health regulation, dignity of work. The decriminalization process that is currently happening in states like Oregon, New York, California, and other places across the country have one key difference compared to other places around the globe. The key comparison between sex work decriminalization is that decriminalization does not mean legalization. Professor Wilking 
studied El Salvador as well as other places in Latin America, which focused in legalization. Decriminalization means that sex work will no longer be prosecuted for their work. However, legalization means that sex work can be regulated, and sex workers will have guidelines that aim to protect them. As the country moves forward with decriminalization and possibly legalization of sex work, Professor Wilking wants to remind listeners of one key phrase. Sex work is work. The Omicron variant has sparked widespread fear and international travel restrictions since it was designated a variant of concern on November 28th. WNYU's Grace Symes talked to Dr. Celine Gounder about what we know so far about Omicron. The Omicron variant has been detected in 50 countries and at least 19 U.S. states as of Tuesday, according to the CDC. I talked to Dr. Celine Gounder about the risks Omicron poses and what we can do about it. Dr. Gounder is an infectious disease specialist and epidemiologist at NYU Langone and Bellevue Hospital, host of the Epidemic and American Diagnosis podcast, and was a member of the Biden-Harris Transition COVID-19 Advisory Board. So I wanted to start by asking, why are scientists and doctors so concerned about this particular variant? So there are a few reasons why. One is we've gotten some hints, some clues that this uh, variant may be more infectious Uh, We're seeing um, the initial hints of that from South Africa, where the steep rate of rise in Omicron cases that we saw in that population um, that very quickly outstripped um, Delta cases was very concerning. Uh, Number two uh, are concerns about immune evasion. And again, what we're seeing in South Africa is that people who had previous infection we're now getting reinfected with Omicron. We know that in general, vaccination holds up better than immunity from natural infection, but there are mutations in the Omicron variant, some of which are concerning for immune evasion. And that's one of the reasons the administration right now is really pushing everybody 18 and up to get a booster dose. In a sense, you're topping off your antibody levels at least for the next six months or so And that's enough time for the Pfizer's and Moderna's, et cetera, of the world to uh, develop a second-generation vaccine. What do we know so far in terms of if Omicron could be as deadly as Delta? Many of the initial cases were in younger, relatively healthy people. And we know that, in general, COVID um, causes less severe disease in relatively younger and healthier people. So until you have data on how Omicron is um, behaving across different demographic groups, uh, across age groups. It's a bit hard. It's a bit um, difficult to say if it's more virulent or not. It's a bit too early. The other thing is, even if you have a virus that is, in fact, milder, uh, you know, one way of measuring that is what percentage of people who are infected die. Even if that number is lower, if the number of people who get infected is more than twice as many, you actually have more death. Do you expect Omicron to become the dominant variant in the U.S.? It's a little bit hard to say because South Africa and and the U.S. are different. South Africa is is less than 25% fully vaccinated. Uh, The U.S. is 60% fully vaccinated. But if things do play out as they are in South Africa, it is likely that 
Omicron will um, come to dominate here. So in that respect, should we expect to see this spread across all of the U.S.? Uh, Yes, I think we should anticipate Omicron will spread across the United States. I think it's already been found in almost half of states. And um, that's partly a reflection of which states are testing, which are not. You have states like Massachusetts that are testing um, 30% of their cases uh, to determine what variant they are. You have some states that are only testing 1%. What measures would you recommend people take against the variant? Same things we've been saying for months now, almost a year now. Um, In addition to vaccination, get an additional dose. The other things that you should be doing are masking. Um, The masks that work best are N95 respirators or KN95 or KF94 masks, making better use of ventilation and air filtration, buying HEPA air filtration units, and then rapid testing. Are there things you think we as a country should be doing in terms of vaccine mandates, lockdowns, or travel restrictions? We know that if you do not implement um, travel restrictions very quickly after emergence of a virus like this, um, they have very little impact. And, you know, in addition to that, there's a major loophole with respect to who those travel restrictions apply to. Um, if you're going to allow Americans and permanent residents to travel back and forth and you're only restricting travel by foreign nationals, you're going to have a limited impact. Do you think that better global vaccine distribution could help prevent future variants like Omicron? Yeah, it's difficult to draw a causal line between vaccine inequity led directly to the emergence of the Omicron variant. But the more you allow the virus to spread, every time it spreads from one person to another, it replicates. Every time it replicates, it mutates. Some of those mutates will give rise to new variants. And by vaccinating more people, you reduce viral spread. For The Rundown 89.1 FM, I'm Grace Symes. For The Rundown. This past month, NYU announced that they covered 100% of the need-based financial aid for the class of 2025. Margot Bender has the story. On 89.1 FM, this is Margot Bender. Recently, the NYU Office of Financial Aid announced through Washington Square News that they were able to meet 100% of the need-based financial aid for the class of 2025. Representative John Beckman stated that this would apply to not only domestic students, but also international students, and would apply to all NYU applicant classes going forward. To get a better understanding of the impact this has for the NYU community, I spoke with a Tisch drama freshman and a media culture and communications freshman at Steinhardt, both of whom are on financial aid and felt that it had benefited them in in very important ways. Well, I wouldn't be here without it. I applied the last day that I could to NYU because I didn't think it was an option for me to go here. Um, I didn't even want to think about the financial burden that that could put on my parents. And a big part of the application process was looking for scholarships and picking and choosing what applications I was going to actually send in, whether or not I thought I could afford to go there. Um, Their financial aid program is what allows me to attend this school. So I would say it's changed the trajectory of my life in a lot of ways. NYU's financial aid program has personally helped me a great deal due to the fact that I'm from a lower income family and am also first generation. However, I know that this isn't the case for many other people. 
I was more so surprised that this is the first year that 100% of the need-based financial aid was met. I feel like meeting the demonstrated financial needs of applicable students should be a priority. A lot of people can't afford the education that they seek and deserve. And if we have the resources to accommodate those people, I think it's important to use them in my eyes. And if we don't, I think it's important to find them. I was quite surprised to hear that they were meeting 100% of financial aid for the class of 2025, especially since I've heard how expensive it is for a lot of other people to attend. I do feel as if it is unfair for to the earlier years who did not receive the financial aid they might have needed. Um, there also could be the case of students wanting to attend NYU and ending up not doing so because of the financial burden, which is something I think may change in the future if NYU is meeting 100% of financial aid. Um, if that's the case, then we might see an increase in number of applicants. Due to that fact, the people might be able to afford NYU more than before with their aids being met. Yeah, I mean, I would be discouraged if I had not been given the support I needed to receive an education here and decided to juggle the tremendous financial burden that comes along with it. Paying full tuition as someone who would benefit from financial aid is a tough decision that not everyone has the option to make. In thinking about the class of 2024, um, paying full tuition for online courses, especially in the midst of a time where so many people were unemployed, just to hear that you were the last class that NYU didn't meet 100% of the need-based financial aid would um, make me wish I took a gap year. <laughs> it would be pretty discouraging. I think that if this continues, it will impact NYU pretty positively, given that the school will be filled with people who have grown up from different opportunities and different privileges, even more, more so than it already is. I think that more people will apply and get in, and that will be fostering an environment where students can learn from each other on an even greater scale. I also think it would definitely alter the school's reputation. I just think it's a good thing all around. And I'd argue that the grades here would probably go up because um, I know a lot of people have to work and help pay tuition while they're in school. Um, so I think that people would be able to focus more on their academics and more on exploring what they want to learn here if they had that support that they needed. I think that a lot of people would get more out of what NYU has to offer if we continue to meet these needs. When 100% of a student's need-based financial aid is met, it means that all of a student's financial needs are met without the use of loans. A financial aid package can come in the form of grants, scholarships, or work-study. Whether a student qualifies for financial aid and the amount of aid they qualify for is determined by demonstrated need through the free application for federal student aid. Beckman stated that the average financial aid package for the class of 2025 was $50,000, which was a great increase from the class of 2024's $39,000 package. There is still question as to whether other classes at NYU will receive extended financial aid packages um, as um, part of the policy. 
For The Rundown on 89.1 FM, this has been Margot Bender. Visiting the holiday market at Union Square has been a long-time tradition for New Yorkers and tourists nationwide. It is an internationally renowned holiday market located in the heart of New York City with over 160 vendors for unique gifts created by local craftsmen, artists, and entrepreneurs. Over 100 million people, over millions of over millions of people browse the winding aisles each year, enjoying this unique and eclectic holiday experience. Our reporters, Miranda and Selena, have the story. The most popular stands at the holiday market are often those of food and beverages. But this year, some artists are coming out strong with the support of their creative network. Simon, a pop art painter who's having his second year at the holiday market, told us about the process to become a vendor and some challenges he has faced. Something as simple as applying online, um, submitting a, an example of your work, but it's it's easy to apply. It's difficult to know how much you need, especially if it's your first year doing this. You only have an idea of how much you want to sell. That doesn't necessarily mean that's how much you're going to sell. The experience comes from doing other markets or just doing markets in general or just vending in general, whether you do wholesale, street fairs, etc. You have an idea of who your clients are, their demographics, their age, and you pick a location based on whether or not you think it hits your demographic. According to Simon, the cost for a booth can be as high as $18,000 for the month. We also talked to Anju Kang, an artist with a Korean heritage. She is selling some prints of her watercolors to brush up the holiday spirits. While we were talking to her, Anju shared with us her family background and her story of how her company was originally started and how her art connects people she loves. My name is Anju Kang. I am the owner of Unco EUNCO. It's a three sisters company. I am the only one in New York. I'm from LA, California. My sister's back home. It started about 20 years ago. And my older sister started the company because I'm the painter, the middle sister, and uh, they want to support me. So they started the company for me so I can paint. The oldest one is pianist. My younger one is fashion designer. So she makes the clothing for us. And then my older sister kind of runs the family uh, business. The distance between Anju and her sisters became one of the driving forces behind the creation of the company. Because I'm the only one away from home. So a lot of times I rip my artwork or just like send them notes all the time. And then my sister said, maybe we can use your art and print them, reproduce them instead of hand make everything. So that's how it started, Stationery Company. Uncle not only sells art prints, Andrew's booth is full of everyday items with a touch of her paintings. We put my artwork and the stationaries, and then eventually we moved to journals and gift enclosures, gift tags, and coasters and magnets. But now I am also making some prints of my art, fine art pieces, oh, tote bags and tea towels. There's a lot of items. The holiday market is an eclectic experience for the artists as well as the customers. Anju loves meeting customers with different backgrounds and seeing them appreciate her artworks. I love looking at customers flipping through 
items. That's like old-fashioned stationery shop that we don't see anymore. And a little bookmark and little tattoos. It's just like a lot of little things, but it gives me a lot of joy watching the customer. On the other hand, how can a holiday market not have candies? And how about a candy shop run by a previous Vogue model? The shop was called Hard Nectar, and the owner is Crystal Van Varkenhoff. When we first visited her stand at a holiday market, Crystal's mom was there to support her business, and she seemed so proud and excited to tell us about her daughter's accomplishments. Crystal's friend was there to help as well, and she told us another incident. So we had this woman come by and buy some things, and she the whole time was like, "I'm buying these because I'm so proud of you," and we were like, "That's the cutest thing I've ever heard." And by, by the time she left, Crystal was like, "My heart is full. The whole it's all worth it. It's all I love it all. You know." Just like Anjun and her sisters, the artists at the Christmas market all have a supportive network to some extent. She built the stand with the help of her like entire little coffee crew in Williamsburg. Like my dad, they they went to IKEA and like got all their wood. And then someone else in the shop was like, "We'll help you put up the lights." And then you know the whole family comes together. Those artists' story at the market warmed our heart more than a cup of hot chocolate, and this is what Christmas is about: families, celebrations, good food, and good vibes. The Union Square Holiday Market this year opens from November 18th to December 24th. For the rundown, this has been Selena and Miranda. I just loved the ending to that story. It warmed my my heart very much. <laughs> And with our next story and our last piece tonight, with midterm elections in 2022 coming up, questions about gerrymandering and partisanship in elections are more important now than ever. New York State established an independent redistrict, an independent redistricting commission to solve all of this. But how is it doing? WNYU reporter Vinith Yadidi has the story. For a long time, New York State politics has been dominated by Democrats. For the most part, these Democrats in Albany have been able to draw out their own districts, making it even harder for Republicans to challenge them. But in 2014, voters voted yes on Proposition One, establishing the Independent Redistricting Commission, made up of five Democrats and five Republicans. And after the 2020 census, New York actually lost a seat in the House of Representatives, meaning that it was up to the ten members of the commission to figure out how and where to redraw New York's districts in a nonpartisan way. I would charge us all to、uh, avoid. Becoming another partisan、uh, group, we need to work together. We need to cooperate, and we need to compromise. And anything short of that, anything short of that, fails the people of the state of New York. Well, if,、uh, if I may,、uh, I am relieved to hear、uh, our colleagues' commitment to one person, one vote. And the voting rights, and getting the people's work done here, above and beyond、uh, the interests of the partisan work. So it's an honor for me to be a part of this process. That was Commissioners Charles Nesbitt and Elaine Frazier in a commission meeting on September 9th. But on September 15th, two different plans were presented by each party in the commission. The Republican plan proposes to dilute the Democratic stronghold near New York City and to shift power upstate. For instance, it seeks to challenge the 19th district in the Hudson Valley, represented by Democrat Antonio Delgado, and to incorporate it into the more conservative surrounding districts. According to 538, this would overall remove two Democrat-leaning seats and add one Republican-leaning seat. On the other hand, 
The Democrats' plan wants to secure New York City as a Democratic stronghold and to mitigate the effects of Republican voters in the suburbs and upstate. For instance, it proposes mixing districts around the city to dilute Republican voters in Long Island and Westchester, and it seeks to remove the 23rd district near Pennsylvania altogether. Needless to say, Republicans don't like how this turned out at all. Let's let's just do better. I'm going to go ahead I'm, uh, uh, and support putting forward two maps because we don't really have a choice at this point. But I think it should not be a precedent. We are a precedent setting, but I believe that a fair reading of the Constitution does not contemplate this process that we're about to go forward on. So let's do better. The deadline to finalize one final map is January 15th, and Republicans are terrified of what might happen if that deadline isn't met. In November, Governor Kathy Hochul signed a bill dictating that if a map isn't finalized by January 15th, it would then fall into the hands of the Democrat-controlled state legislature, which will draw districts favorable to incumbent Democrats. Nick Langworthy, the chairman of the New York GOP, accused Democrats of using their redistricting proposal to stall until Democrats can draw their own maps. He also said that the GOP would fight this with every legal and political tool in the GOP's arsenal. This is a fair criticism, though we shouldn't forget the broader context. After all, we're facing the 2022 midterm elections. It's no longer will the competition of competitive seats be small. It'll be more than 70 Democrats that will be competitive. There's many that are going to lose their races based upon walking off a cliff from Nancy Pelosi pushing them. The Republicans are uniquely poised to take back the House and the Senate next year. And, as I'm sure you know, they're prepared to do so through some seriously shady means. States like Georgia and Texas, among others, passed extensive restrictions on voting that will disproportionately block Democrats and minorities from voting. They even passed laws punishing officials, suggesting that the 2022 elections are going to be a serious affair. So, given the GOP's efforts across the country, Democrats in New York actually feel compelled to gerrymander just to keep up. In fact, according to the Cook Political Report, there's a proposal out there that could purge up to five of the eight di GOP districts in New York. For example, some of Republican Westchester could be integrated into Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's solidly blue 14th district, and Representative Nicole Meliotakis's red 11th district in Staten Island could expand to include more Democrat voters in Brooklyn. Whatever the case, the January 15th deadline to finalize a map is looming, so we'll just have to see what the redistricting commission does. I'm Vinith Yudidi, and this is WNYU 89.1 FM. That's going to do it here for us tonight. If you liked what you heard or you want to hear something different, you can email us at news at wnyu.org. I won't be back here next week. Uh, this is my last show of the new of the year. Um, I thank you all for tuning in and listening to me once a week. Jack Peterson will be your host next week, but I will return for the new year. Coming up is What the NY with Ed and Ari. And I'm Grace Wanabo, and this has been The Rundown here on WNYU 89.1 FM, New York. <laughs>